0: would you pray with me again? God, we do thank you for the gift that each one of these brothers and sisters has been to us, for the legacy of faith that they have left behind, and we pray that you will give us the courage and the strength to honor their memories by carrying forward the light of life that you have placed in them that they have passed on to each of us to share your light and your good news with the world around us. We pray for our kids as they go to kids' worship and ask that you would continue to bless them as the the next generation whom you are calling forward to also be light in the darkness and that they would come away from their time this morning feeling that you have met them uh, through their time of kids' worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, where we are continuing our series on uh, finding hope in a hostile world. And uh, in the story today, we are uh, suddenly introduced to some new characters that we hadn't seen before. Uh, And we hear about a story that uh, continues in some ways to live on in popular culture, whether we realize it or not. But uh, you may uh, be familiar with it through various phrases like, uh, his days are numbered. Or maybe uh, the handwriting is on the wall. <laughs> Historically, we know that uh, a series of rival kings uh, came and went after King Nebuchadnezzar died as people were vying for power and the throne. And we know that uh, the, the book of Daniel, particularly the verses, uh, chapters one through six, are presented as kind of a historical drama. Uh, But as we've been learning, uh, they could also be considered in the compendium of wisdom literature of the Bible because the underlying lessons that we learn from Daniel are, are really about where true wisdom is found and how do we put our trust in the sovereignty of God, and that no matter how life seems to be going around us or the circumstances of life in this world, we can put our trust in the fact that God is in control and his plans and his purposes for the people that he loves and that he is called to be his own will be what wins out in the end. Um, according to Daniel chapter five, the last king to sit on the throne of the empire of Babylon was a guy named Belshazzar. Uh, and we're going to see the account of his final day on the throne and the end of the empire in chapter five. We're not going to be able to read all of the verses. So I'm going to skip through a little bit and I'll try and narrate along the way. Uh, but we start with verse one, where it says, "King Belshazzar." gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. That's quite a party. (laughs) While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. As you can imagine, that'd be a pretty scary situation, right? Now, uh, more literally, it says that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. And so some scholars suggest that in, you know, in a, it's kind of a euphemism that he was so scared that he pooped his pants, <laughs> But the Bible didn't want to say that directly here, so. And so in verse 7, it continues, the king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Starting to hear like, sound like deja vu, right? God presents a mystery, a dream, a, 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 an experience that the king knows has some importance, some value, something that he needs to know or understand. And so he turns to all of his wise men, his astrologers, his enchanters, his diviners, but none of them have the wisdom or the knowledge to be able to know how to interpret what God's message is. And so the only recourse that he has is there's this guy named Daniel. <laughs> And of course, a character comes in from stage left called the queen. And we don't really know who the queen is, but the queen comes in and reminds Belshazzar of all that Nebuchadnezzar had gone through with this person, Daniel, and that Daniel was still alive. Uh, They estimate he's probably about 80 years old at this point, but he's still there and he's still in the kingdom. And, And she says, you should call Daniel because Daniel has the ability to interpret dreams and to solve riddles, and he's the one who you need to help you. And so jumping to verse 13, it says Daniel was brought before the king, and the king king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. And you see, what what scholars suggest here is that you can already tell in the tone and the difference between the way he's approaching Daniel uh, from the way Nebuchadnezzar approached Daniel. Uh, The phrases that Nebuchadnezzar uses, I know that the spirit of the gods is in you. And here Belshazzar is like, aren't you that exile guy that my father kind of captured and I heard about this from you. So there's kind of this skepticism. There's this doubt. There's this uh, assumption that, that there's this tension and this conflict already between Belshazzar and Daniel. And you can see that then in verse 17, when Daniel answers the king, he, he says, you can keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. <laughs> Nonetheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And Daniel goes on to take time to remind Belshazzar how God had humbled King Nebuchadnezzar and that it was through the process of him repenting and submitting himself to to God and acknowledging the sovereignty of the the God of Israel that he was then restored to his kingdom and his fortunes were returned to him. And he continues then in verse 22, he says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. So you knew all of this. See, he he, he knew what was going on. This was not news to Belshazzar. He wasn't telling him anything he didn't already know. Instead, he says, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. In verse 24, then he says, therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, mene mene tekel Parsin." And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and been found wanting. Perez, which is actually the singular form of parsin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Woohoo) <laughs> Really exciting because it says then that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of sixty-two. Now, I'd like to take some time to unpack some of the historical background here and, and to talk a little bit about the language of what's going on in this, this riddle of the handwriting on the wall before we get to some personal application of it, because I do find it it's fairly complex and it's helpful for us to, to be able to understand what is our takeaway from this passage. Interestingly, uh, for centuries, there was no historical record of a king named Belshazzar in Babylon. So for many years, people kind of assumed that here was another example where the Bible got it wrong, it wasn't historically accurate, and it just proved that it was all just fanciful writing from some people from ancient times. Uh, In fact, the last known king of Babylon, according to historical record, had always been a king named Nabonidus. But then in 1854, References to Belshazzar were actually found in cuneiform inscriptions that were archaeologically discovered at the Babylonian site. And though he's referred to in the book of Daniel as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the assumption is that simply means that Nebuchadnezzar was his uh, predecessor. Uh, The Babylonian inscriptions indicate that he was in fact the oldest son of Nabonidus, was the last known ruler of Babylon, who went into exile 10 years before Babylon's fall and gave control of the empire to his son, Belshazzar. So when Babylon fell in 550 BC, or no, that's when he went into exile. When Babylon fell, Belshazzar was actually the ruling uh, king within the capital. As in previous accounts of the book of Daniel, so here we see that the king can't understand the meaning of this writing, right? God has presented him with this conundrum. And none of his wise men can make heads or tails of it. So at the advice of the queen, which they suggest this uh, queen figure is probably the queen mother, either it was Nebuchadnezzar's widow who was still alive, or perhaps the biological mother of Belshazzar who was coming in to try and advise her son. Uh, but, but they say that all of his wives and his concubines were already in the party. So the queen is probably some other extended family member. Uh, And and while they're all there, it suggests this interaction with Daniel uh, is this tense conflict that already is brewing for uh, coming to a head. Uh, uh, Belshazzar is interrogating Daniel. He's reminding him of his status as a a captive. And and as we said, the, the ways that he approaches him are expressing doubt and cynicism about who Daniel is. Now, to be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold and to be made the third person in the empire also suggests that he would be made uh, a king. It would be elevated to royal status. That's what those symbols mean. And now also historically knowing that Belshazzar was the uh, son of Nabonidus, then it would also make sense that if Daniel was elevated to the highest position in the land, he would be third, not second, Right, because you already had Nabonidus and Belshazzar. So it's interesting how the historical record has caught up with the story of the Bible and proved it to be actually true. Now, the challenge for Belshazzar is that he goes even further than Nebuchadnezzar did in his sacrilege against God. He not only commits adultery, which was common in the culture of the Babylonian Empire, but here it becomes very clear that he is very directly blaspheming the God of of the Israelites. He's using the very holy goblets that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem to toast the idols of their own religion, right? The gods that they worship, and he's essentially spitting in the face of God by doing so. And so Daniel's response begins by reminding him of, his, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, who even though he too was prideful and arrogant and, and worshipped idols, nonetheless, he was repentant when God confronted him. And that when he says that you have not humbled yourself in verse 22, he's saying that Belshazzar has no interest in, the, in relationship with God. He has no interest in acknowledging the God of the Bible. And not only did he fail to uh, humble himself before God, but here he doubled down on his resistance and is blaspheming God in the most overt and direct way. So Daniel proceeds to interpret the handwritten message from God, and scholars suggest that here in this uh, phrase, uh, mene mene tekel parsin, mene mene is simply kind of a reiterated for emphasis, Uh, there's three uh, root words that can be interpreted in a variety of ways, and so often, as with biblical language, there are layers to meaning that we miss when we just simply read it in English. Uh, But as a noun form, as its root, it could be a mina, a shekel, and half a shekel. Mina was a unit of currency that had a value of about 60 shekels, and 60 minas would make up one talent. So some have suggested that this writing could have come across as kind of a riddle, right? Uh, A mina, mina, shekel, half a shekel. Or maybe in our parlance, we'd say dollar, dollar, penny, half a penny. And it'd be kind of like, well, what does that mean, right? It's kind of a, a riddle using a noun form when the meaning is really its verb form. So the story also says that the Babylonian wise men weren't able to read it, though, uh, much less solve the riddle. So at the core of the story, we know Daniel is able to both read and interpret the writing, and it suggests the writing was in the common language at the time. So they uh, suggest that maybe there's something more going on. Uh, the writing was in the common language, but it seems that there are these additional layers to the meaning. And interesting, an interesting approach by scholar Al Walters takes um, a compelling study where he identifies how these root uh, words that are formed by the three content consonants, uh, which form either nouns or verbs, carry different meanings depending on how you add the vowels and then enunciate the words. So in this interpretation, he suggests that the root words may have been written what he, in what he calls a kind of scriptura continua, where all of these consonants may have been mashed together into in this long string of letters, which then have, would have been kind of unintelligible and kind of a, uh, in a technical academic parlance gobbledygook. But you can see the three... Um, if we go back to the previous slide, we can see the three uh, gatherings of the, the consonants. And then if they're all kind of mashed together in this writing, that could have been what he's suggesting was on the wall. But then if you go to the next slide, uh, when taken in their verb form, uh, they would be read in the green lettering there as uh, numbered and weighed and divided which is actually what we see in Daniel's interpretation, right? He says, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And yet in a, in a third layer that he identifies, all three levels of meaning, he says, carry the significance of being weighed in the balance of the scales. And in the red there, you could, you could also read, you could vocalize the words and it says he has paid out. So he's numbered your days and, you know, limited what he, he's given you all that he's going to give you. Uh, tikal is you're too light, you know, in the balance of the scales, you, you, you're, you're not making the, the grade. And then Paraz could also be Persia, who's the ones who are going to come in and take over. Now, all of this is interesting especially if you consider what is happening astrologically at the time. And the reason I say that is because we have to understand that Babylonian astrology was the first known organized system of astrology for religious purposes. And it was one of the two chief means at the disposal of these wise men and these enchanters and these diviners, or what we would maybe call priests today, for ascertaining the will and the intention of the gods. The other one was reading the uh, livers and entrails of sacrificial sheep, (laughs) which was uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Another note that I found is that clay models of sheep livers have actually been found all over different areas of the Middle East that were used as training models for how to teach diviners how to do this kind of reading of sheep livers. (laughs) But again, I think the main point is that reading portents and omens in the stars and interpreting them as divine messages of the gods with the reality that we know that on this very night, Babylon fell to the Persian empire without any, any resistance. And the date was October 12th, 539 BC. It was the exact timing when the astrological sign of Libra was rising in the night sky. And the image of Libra is the image of the scales. Only God does stuff like that. Now, it's assumed that the Persians were already camping on their doorstep. And so Belshazzar likely knew that a Persian attack was imminent. So this party was either like a a final attempt to encourage and rally his his politicians and his military leaders to do a last stand, but uh, without there being any resistance to the Persians, it was more likely uh, one last hurrah before the party's over. Uh, The throne of Babylon was actually excavated in 1899 the throne room of Babylon, and enough was left to show... There was no handwriting on the wall, um, but there was enough left to show that the walls had been covered with a, a white gypsum kind of plaster, so that fits with the story, where the writing could have been very visible, especially if it, especially if it was placed near a lampstand like the story says. So how do we interpret this passage for ourselves? What do we take away from all of this? Again, I just want to suggest for us today a couple of takeaways. The first one is the issue of blasphemy. Right? What is blasphemy? Blasphemy, in its basic understanding, is a dishonoring God with either our speech or our actions. And the arrogance and idolatry of Belshazzar's actions can still be found throughout, in abundance in the world today. There are many people who are thumbing their nose at God who are very intentionally wanting to uh, reject God and make a point of it. And while we don't have the equivalent of these sacred goblets to profane, we can learn from the fact that these goblets were symbols of God's holiness and his presence in the world. Like the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, these were used to convey the vast separation between God's holiness on the one hand and human sinfulness on the other. And to profane what God had deemed as sacred then was to blaspheme God. And to profane what God had revealed to be a symbol of His holiness and His presence in the world was to reject the very things that God said that we should hold up as valuable and as a priority and as the things that we should also honor in our own lives. Now, we know with the coming of Christ we see this division of the holy and the profane being uh, torn apart, right? The, the, it, the, the prime illustration for that is the rending of the curtain in the temple between the holy of holies and, and just the holy place, right? Matthew 27 verse 50 says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so it kind of begs the question, does does Jesus' death and resurrection mean that there's no longer anything that is sacred or holy in the world? Or is it possible that it means just the opposite? That because of what Jesus has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, he has now made it possible that anything and everything can be made holy. You see, before Christ, God made His presence known in in very specific and special ways and in very certain locations. But now in Christ, we know that we can meet God anywhere. We can find God in all circumstances of life. You don't have to go to a particular temple or pray at a particular rock or or, or find God in very specific ways. We can find God through all of the different pathways and aspects of life in this world. You don't have to come to church on Sunday morning for one hour in order to find a relationship with the God of the Bible. In fact, what we've been saying for a long time is if this one hour on Sunday morning is kind of your limited exposure to your relationship with God, there's probably a lot that you're missing that you don't even realize God wants to have for you in your relationship with Him. You now, if this is the case, then for us, the, the reality is that it may also take the issue of blasphemy to a whole new level which we don't have time to go into, but I would suggest to you it's kind of what Jesus was doing with his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what I mean. Any misuse or abuse of any part of God's creation that has the potential to reveal his presence and his holiness has the potential to become a blaspheming of God. Whoops. <laughs> right? And particularly, I would suggest, for other people who the Bible says are the very image bearers of God when he created them to be revealers of his personality and the kind of character of who God is. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? See, Here I would suggest to us that, again, what we learn from what Jesus reveals to us about the nature of our relationship with God is that we are deeply humbled by the reality of what Jesus reveals. And we should be reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul that rather than sitting as Daniel in judgment over guys like Belshazzar, we should be reminded that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we must rely on God's mercy and, our, and grace for forgiveness for all the ways that we too profane the holiness of God and miss those places where God wants us to honor him with our lives, but instead we end up maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally thumbing our nose at what God is wanting to do for us and in us and through us. Which leads us to takeaway number two. In the context of reading Daniel chapter 5 as a part of the wisdom literature of the Bible and not just as historical drama, there can be a temptation to think of the story of Belshazzar and Daniel as a kind of cause and effect wisdom. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, what made the outcome of Belshazzar's story so different from the story of Nebuchadnezzar, where Nebuchadnezzar was restored and Belshazzar was killed, is that we might not realize uh, how God's judgment actually works, and that there is this cause and effect assumption that we can make that can miss the deeper point of what the story is trying to tell us. So again, let me unpack this for us. On the surface, we might consider that Nebuchadnezzar repented, and Belshazzar did not, so one got punishment, and the other got restoration. And while that's true and is a factor of God's rightful judgment of Belshazzar, it shouldn't lead us away from the core understanding that the book of Daniel is all about, which we've been saying every week, is that no matter how it seems, whatever the circumstances are, God is always in control. And so while we might be tempted to apply the story of Belshazzar as a kind of cause-and-effect wisdom learning, that is, if you sin and you do not repent... God's going to punish you, right? That would be one application of the story of Belshazzar. I would suggest to us that we have to be careful not to allow such an interpretation to take us away from the deeper wisdom that the story is trying to reveal. And that's that God is in control and that nothing the evil and unrepentant people of the world do, those who are in power over us, those who have influence over us, those to whom our lives are beholden, can thwart his plans and his purposes for his people. And so if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake that Job's friends made. You don't remember those guys? who took such a view of wisdom and misapplied it to Job's life, right? They took a cause and effect assumption about the nature of life in this world and the application of wisdom and and, and said, okay, Job, what did you do, right? God doesn't let bad things happen to good people. Therefore, Job, you must have done something wrong that you need to repent for, so why don't you just quit lying, be honest about what you did, come come clean with God, repent so that God can can restore you. And Job's like, I didn't do anything. (laughs) You see, there's this, Understanding of wisdom that is a kind of structure legitimizing wisdom, scholars say, that you can see in in books like Proverbs, right, where there's this kind of clear cause and effect. If you do this, you get that. There, There are consequences to our actions, and we know that that's true. That is a part of life. But the challenge is that God is not bound by the structures of the creation that he's made. In God's sovereignty, he has the ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, so that he can see that his purposes are what win out in the end. And so the question for us might be, to what extent do we as Christians now act like Job's friends and assume that there's a divine punishment at work when we see the suffering of other people in the world? Because in the New Testament, we're told that God's judgment of evil and his condemnation of the wicked still stands. That, that hasn't gone away with the arrival of Jesus, right? Jesus himself said in John 8:26, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. But there's also a clear message from Jesus that God's people and the followers of his Son are not in the position to be the ones to judge others, right? Jesus said in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so while there's clearly a structure of cause and effect that we experience as as we live in God's creation, God himself is not bound to those structures. And again, the point of the book of Daniel is not about our ability then to take the wisdom and the knowledge that God has revealed to us in his word and then stand in judgment of other people as if somehow we've gotten it all right, we know it all, and now we can somehow criticize others because, you know, we don't have anything to work on anymore. The whole point of the book of Daniel is really not about our ability to judge others, but to rely on the sovereignty of God no matter how things appear in our lives. You might remember that Jesus' first disciples struggled with this understanding of wisdom and judgment too, right? And Jesus' answer was to also lead them to focus on God's sovereignty, and not their role in judging other people. John 9, 1 and 3, he says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? You see the cause and effect judgment there? There's this core assumption, bad things don't happen to good people. Here's this man suffering. He must have done something wrong, or maybe his parents did, and he's paying the consequences of this generational sin, right? And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had a larger purpose, and God may have allowed a difficult and a challenging circumstances to come into this man's life, but God knew that he was going to allow that to happen because he had a greater plan to use this person to reveal his plans and his purposes for the world. And so the question is, do we have the ability to really trust in the sovereignty of God and in his desire to bless us and to use us for his purposes, even though it might mean that that we don't always have an easy life? It doesn't mean that things are always going to go our way. It means that he allows us to live as sheep among wolves. Or we can expect that when we say yes to Jesus and we allow ourselves to be humbled by the sovereignty of God that we now expect that that means God's going to take care of all of our problems and we should never suffer and we should never have any difficulty. And if we do, then we assume that God either doesn't love us or God doesn't care about us or God isn't watching what's going on in our lives because God doesn't let good things, bad things happen to good people. See, the reality that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples is that as we wait on this side of heaven for the fulfillment of God's righteous judgment, which he has promised is coming and he has revealed to us has already happened in the person and the work of Jesus. God has already judged the world at the cross. The wicked may continue to sometimes prosper, and the righteous may sometimes suffer, yet we know that an ultimate day of reckoning is coming, and we don't have to worry about that, but we can entrust the judgment to God himself because he's the only one who has the wisdom and understanding to know how to do that. And so the teaching here is not that we are supposed to somehow be smart enough or wise enough or holy enough to be able to be like Daniel and to stand in prophetic judgment of the world around us. And to look at a person who may be suffering and going through difficult circumstances and say, behold, the judgment of God. Because in the moment we do that, Jesus says you're going to be judged by the same measure that you're using. So be careful. Rather, our role as followers of Jesus and the path that he's revealed to us is that he calls us to point to the good news of repentance and restoration through mercy and forgiveness and grace and love. In a world that continues to be filled with trouble and evil and chaos, and especially right now, it's on the news every day. God's inviting us to offer words of life, not words of condemnation. And it doesn't mean that we remain morally neutral in the face of oppression and injustice or in the face of greed and licentiousness in a world that is going to hell in a handbasket, right? The point is that along with Jesus, we don't seek the destruction of the godless, we seek their restoration in their redemption. And that's, brothers and sisters, the very mission that God has invited us to join him in that he revealed through his son, Jesus. Jesus didn't come to destroy the world. He came to save the world. And he invites us on that mission with him. Too often I think the church feels like it needs to take the role of prophet to the world, prophet to the culture. When God has invited us to take the role of priest or servant to the culture as Jesus has revealed. And a priest is simply a mediator between God and the world. It's somebody who is the bridge of relationship between people and God. And in order to be a bridge between people and God, you can't stand in judgment of people. You have to let God do that. You have to be a lover and a a forgiver and a person who says, there but for the grace of God go I. So maybe as we wrap up today, the question is, where is forgiveness and mercy and grace needed in your life to replace an attitude of judgment and criticism in the relationships that you have? Where have you been too quick to look at those around you, maybe in your own home or maybe here at church or maybe in our own neighborhoods, Maybe even as you watch the news and you see what's happening in the world, do you find your own perspective and your own attitude to be first one of judgment and criticism and knowledge that you've got it right and look at all these schmucks who have no idea what's going on if only they knew what I knew. I mean, isn't that our temptation is to go there because because we feel so confident in what we know that it's easy to rush to judgment and to look at others with criticism. But the harder path is to look at your husband or your wife, is to look at your neighbors or your friends, is to look at the world around us with a heart of compassion and with a heart that breaks, and a desire to see them redeemed and restored and to experience the love and grace in God, which is the very thing that we've experienced from God in Christ ourselves. And if we have that as our reaction, if that's our starting point, God will sort out all the rest. So brothers and sisters, let us look at the story of Daniel and Belshazzar. Let us be humbled by the results of Belshazzar's life and his blasphemy against God. But then let us go to our knees in prayer to pray for the world around us and to seek God's restoration and his holiness in his world. Amen? Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you have continued to teach us through the stories of the Bible, through the stories of those who have gone before us and have lived lives of faith that we can now remember and carry on in our own stories. We thank you that in the historical drama of each of our own lives, you continue to remind us of your love and your grace and to call us to a better way. Help us to not live in judgment of those around us. And and God, maybe even, uh, I I didn't think about this as part of the message, but I feel like you're putting it on my heart right now. Let us not even sit in judgment of ourselves, God. So many of us can feel like we fall short of what is expected or what is hoped for, and we can uh, react with criticism and judgment of, of our very selves when we are the ones that we've been singing about today, but you want. We are the ones that you love. We are the ones that you gave your life to redeem and to restore. So God, give us hearts of mercy and grace for ourselves and for others. Restore our hearts of judgment with hearts of peace and help us to be light in the darkness and hope in a hostile world. It's in Jesus' name we pray.